The reading is taken from um, 2 Peter chapter 3, and this is on page 1,223. 2 Peter chapter 3. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Before we begin, let's just open in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you that, you that you're a gracious God, that you're gracious and merciful toward us. Thank you for the wonder and the glory of your precious and living word. We ask, Lord, that by the Holy Spirit you'd use this word to change us, to transform us, to renew our hearts, our minds, and our wills. And all this we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. 
Simon Peter, the man who denied Jesus Christ three times, finds himself face to face with that self-same resurrected Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Three times Jesus asks him, do you love me, Peter? Three times Peter says, yes, Lord. Three times Jesus says, if you love me, tend my sheep. In effect, if you love me, care for my people, love my people, protect my people. Many years later, Peter faces the end of his life by a gruesome martyrdom. And facing that end, knowing that Christ is there with him by the Holy Spirit, he sits down and he writes one last letter, a letter to his Lord's people, a letter to his Lord's sheep, a letter to you, and a letter to me. So what does he say to us in his last letter? What does he say as he seeks to faithfully carry out the charge that Jesus gave him, as he seeks to ensure that his people are cared for and are protected? What does he say? Well, when we started looking at the letter to Peter a few weeks ago, what we saw in the first chapter was that Peter is desperate to remind us. He's desperate to remind us that we have everything, everything we need for our walk with God in this life. So keep your finger where it is and turn back a couple of pages and look at chapter 1. Chapter 1. Verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. He's saying that if you responded to God's saving call, and if you are building a life of godliness, then you, chapter 1, verse 10, will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's chapter 1. We have everything we need to ensure that we receive a rich welcome. But in chapter 2, as we saw last week, his emphasis changes. In chapter 2, Peter goes from being desperate to remind us to being desperate to warn us. And so he almost screams out a warning in chapter 2, verse 1, when he says, there will be false teachers among you, then and now. And his warning is with good reason, because we do have false teachers, false prophets, false pastors, and false bishops in the church today. What he then did in the rest of chapter 2 was he alerted us to what they will look like and what they will typically do so that we can be on our guard against them. So he says in chapter 2, verse 1, they will introduce destructive heresies. They will distort the truth. In 2, verse 1, he also says they will deny the sovereign Lord. They will deny the truth of the gospel. And in 2, verse 3, he says they will exploit you with stories. They will fabricate truth. He wants you to be on the alert 
for what false teachers, pastors, and bishops will say and will do. And then he goes to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, the last part of his letter, what we'll see is that he goes from being desperate to remind us and desperate to warn us to being desperate to equip us. Desperate to equip us. So look at chapter 3, verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Now by stimulate, he means to stir you up, to wake you up, to shock you into action. So do you remember that feeling at school when you were all cozy and warm? In your case, unlike today, sat next to the radiator. In my case, sitting next to an open window, the sunshine streaming in a gentle, soothing breeze rustling the papers. I was in language class. Afrikaans poetry. My teacher was the vice principal, Mr. Nell, six foot four inches of sheer icy terror. Your jacket would button and your tie straighten entirely of their own volition when he walked into the room. But it was impossible not to drift off as Mr. Nell droned on about Afrikaans poetry. So there I was, all cozy and warm, with the breeze gently blowing, until Mr. Nell slammed his hand on the desk and said, Pain, are you awake? Yes, sir, I lied in my terror. <laughs> because it was Mr. Nell. Now, Peter, I'm sure, is far nicer than Mr. Nell. But he does want a similar reaction. He wants you to wake up. Why? Why does he want you to wake up? Well, he wants you to wake up because he wants to ensure that you will, quote, receive a rich welcome by Jesus. That's why. He wants to ensure that you will, verse 14, be found blameless, spotless, and at peace with him. He wants to ensure that you will not, verse 17, be carried away by the error of lawless men, and that you do not, later in verse 17, fall from your secure position. That's why he wants you to wake up to wholesome thinking, to ensure that you do not fall from your secure position. Now at this point, take a breath, because we're going to briefly go down a rabbit trail. And the rabbit trail is this. Can you, as a disciple of Christ, a true believer who's put your faith and trust in Christ, can you fall from your secure position? Can you truly, permanently lose your faith? Two things we need to say. One is what we know is that our eternal security rests in God's hands, not in our hands. God will ensure that his children continue through into glory. As Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. God finishes what he started. He didn't take the people partway through the Red Sea and abandon them. He took them to the end and into the promised land. 
Secondly, what we also know is that anyone claiming to be a Christian who then falls from the faith will either never return, proving that they were never converted in the first place, or they will return to be restored to the faith or to truly come to that genuine heart faith for the first genuine time. So why does Peter say what he does? Well, I think part of the answer is that Peter, in his warning, doesn't make those distinctions. He doesn't make those distinctions because he and we can't know who is in which group. So he aims generally at the professing believer and he urges you to wholesome thinking so that you do not fall from your secure position. He also knows that where you truly stand will one day come out, one way or the other. And his hope is that you will regardless heed his warning because he trusts that God's active, living word will do its work. I think that's mainly why he says what he does. And if that brief rabbit trail had far too many brambles for you, then we can talk about it afterwards. Let's get back onto the main path. So Peter wants you to wake up to wholesome thinking. And by wholesome thinking, he means thinking from a pure motive. Thinking from a pure motive. Put it another way, he means let your thinking be informed and guided by God's word through the Holy Spirit. Let your thinking be informed and guided by God's word through the Holy Spirit. So how? How do we get stirred up to wholesome thinking? Well, we do that by doing something. That's how that happens. Now, you may not have noticed, but in chapter 2, Peter didn't tell you to do anything. In chapter 2, there isn't a single, I want you to, or recall the words, or do not forget, or make every effort, or look forward. But they are all in chapter 3, and there's about a dozen of them. Now, we hesitate. We hesitate to tell people what to do in their walk with God. And we hesitate firstly because we're too polite, which is another way of saying that we want to be liked. And we hesitate because we don't want anyone to think we're telling them how they can work their way to heaven, because they cannot. It cannot be done. So what is Peter so desperate for you to do? What is he so desperate for you to do to ensure that you are equipped, to ensure that you have wholesome thinking, and to ensure that you're welcomed into glory by the Lord Jesus? He wants you to do three things. Isn't it amazing how biblical passages always resolve into three things? He wants you to do three things. I'll tell you what the other two are later. But the first thing he wants you to do is he wants you to recall the words. Recall the words. So look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to, to stimulate, to stir you up to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he said he wrote both letters for the same purpose, right? This is now my second letter to you. So it would be helpful if we briefly look back at what his first letter was about. So keep your finger in that place. 
and go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. 1 Peter 1, 23. <clears throat> For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. He's saying you are born again, your heart, the core of your being, has been supernaturally and miraculously brought to life. How? Through the living and enduring word of God. God the Holy Spirit implanted the seed of the word that you heard in your cold, dead heart, and he breathed life into you. Verse 24, For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. This is the word that was preached to you and that the Holy Spirit used to bring you to life. So what must you do now? What must you do now that you have this new life and a renewed heart? He carries on, chapter 2. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Basically, live a holy life. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's asking, do you want to grow in your salvation? He's asking, do you want to mature to be like the Lord Jesus Christ? And he's asking, do you want to see your salvation fully realized and not be in danger of falling? And he says, there is only one way that can happen. Long for the word, for the life-giving word. Crave the word like a wailing, screaming, desperate newborn who wants one thing and one thing only. I want that milk and I want it now. If you want to be equipped... If you want to be equipped to resist the lies and destructive heresies that you will face even in the church, if you want to be inoculated against the cancerous message of those who want to eviscerate your confidence in Christ, if you want to see your salvation fully realized, and if you want to ensure that you do not fall and you want to be welcomed by the Lord Jesus into glory, he says, Jesus says, Paul says, Peter say, recall the words. Jesus facing an attack by Satan says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Paul in his letter to the Ephesians says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And Peter, desperate to equip you, tells you what to do and he says, recall the words. So that's where he's coming from. Please turn back to 2 Peter 3. Look at verse 3, 2 Peter 3, verse 3, and you'll see that he then warns us that scoffers, scoffers of the word will come. He warns us in verse 16 to beware of ignorant and unstable people who distort the scriptures, who distort the word. And he warns us in verse 17 to be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error, by the distorted word, 
of lawless men. Recall the words, he says, because they will equip you. He's saying, please, 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 for the sake of your soul, read your Bible. Consume your Bible. Meditate on your Bible. Immerse yourself in God's word because nothing else will protect you. So that's the first thing he says. Recall the words. The second thing he wants you to do, the second thing he wants you to do is to be assured. Be assured. So look at verse 3. You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So it seems there was this group of people, probably the same self-teachers, who flatly denied that Christ was going to return. Why? So that they could, quote, follow their own evil desires. It's also that they can continue with whatever lifestyle they choose. Comforted by the delusion that Matthew misquoted Jesus, or Jesus was wrong when he said, in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will scatter the people one from another as a sheep separates the, the, as, a, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So Peter warns us there are people who will try and refute that. So why the denial? Why are they denying that this is going to happen? Are the naysayers confused? No, they're not. Are they misinformed? No, they're not. Look at verse 5. But they deliberately forget. The sense there is that they consent, they agree to put aside. They willingly and intentionally put the truth aside. There's no confusion. There is only deliberate intent. Let's ignore this because we don't like its implications. Let's discount it from our truth because it conflicts with our desires, is how it went then and is how it goes now. Now, we need to be careful about rushing to judgment, right? But as we see later, Peter does urge us to be on our guard. He urges us to be on our guard and alert to the fact that people like this will be prevalent in the church today. They may not always deny that Jesus will return, but they typically will deny what he does when he will return. So we must not be on our guard if the pastor of a large church in London, who claims to be an evangelical, and even spoke here once, and enjoys a huge media following, deliberately undermines what Christ has said when he tweets this. Is the God of love really content to consign the vast majority of the population of earth to judgment and some kind of hell? Would God, a God who is universal love, ordain that only the Christian minority of the race can be rescued? We have to ask, how is that different from what Peter warns us about when he says that those who deny that Christ will return in judgment are those who deliberately forget and are ungodly men who face, quote, judgment and destruction? I can't see how it is different. Maybe I'm wrong but I can't see it. 
To me, Peter is very clear when he says in verse 7 that he will come. He's very clear when he says that he will judge. He will come for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. We must pray that they will hear Peter's warning. We must pray that God would renew their hearts, and we must pray that they would gladly turn to Christ and urge his coming. But we must also recognize and resist a destructive heresy when we hear one. But how does Peter respond to them? What does he do? What does he say in response to this claim that Christ is not coming? He asks two questions. And the first question he asks them is about precedent. Precedent. Now, I'm no attorney. Don't come to me for any of that stuff. You'll get in a whole heap of trouble. But it is my understanding that if you argue a legal case and you have legal precedent on your side, then that's a very good position to be in, right? It's really powerful because it means that if you have a legal ruling from an authority that thereby establishes the norm, especially if it's the authority of the Supreme Court, then it's, it's really powerful. Their ruling, their word, comes from the highest authority in the land, and that gives you excellent case to argue for the same outcome if you have a similar situation, right? So would you worry if somebody were to pipe up and say, look at this idiot, there's no way his case will stand? No, you wouldn't. You would say, look at the Supreme Court precedent. It is going to stand, and that is Peter's first argument. The ultimate precedent from the Supreme Court in all of creation. And he says in verse 5, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of the time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The case he makes is that as sure as you are that God created the universe through a word, let there be light, and there was light. As sure as you are of that, that's how sure you can be that he will return. He will return to tear down this world, and he will return to renew it. And the only reason it hasn't happened yet, the only reason, is that his word is holding it back. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept, being held back for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. The precedent set by the supreme judge in the universe is clear and overwhelmingly authoritative and definitive because it comes from the sovereign God. It will happen, Peter assures us. It will happen as surely as you live and breathe. It will happen. So that's the first question he raises. And the first thing he points to, to assure us that this will happen, he raises irrefutable precedent. The second thing he points to is God's patience. God's patience. So look at verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter's point essentially is that God is not subject to time. Matter, space, and time are created things, and they all lay open before him like a book. 
and a thousand years to you and me is the mere turn of a page to him. And so he quotes a psalm, a psalm of Moses, Psalm 90. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. And what he's saying is that the problem doesn't lie with God's slowness. The problem lies with our perception. The problem is that we mistake God's patience for God's slowness. He's not slow. He's not preoccupied. He's not tied up in a meeting. He's patient. He's giving us time. He's giving us, those he has elected and appointed for eternal life, time to, re to come to repentance. And he has no intention of rushing and initiating the final judgment until all those he has chosen as his children have salvation. He's being patient. So someone has to be the last convert ever, and then he will return. Maybe you're the holder. You know, if you're still thinking about becoming a Christian, maybe you're the last one. Someone has to be, maybe it is you. Maybe it's your fault that the train to glory hasn't arrived at the platform yet. Maybe you're why we still haven't been ushered into a glorious new heaven and a wonderful new earth, and we're still stuck here. We would be grateful if you would just get on with it, please. Just get off the fence, for goodness sake. So there we have it. Peter, desperate to equip us, says the first thing we must do is to recall the words, to be armed with God's word. And he says the second thing we must do is to be assured, to be assured that Christ will come. And then finally, even more positively, he says be encouraged, be encouraged. Look at verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? How should we live? So it's a good question. If Christ is going to return, if he's going to tear down everything and renew this earth anyway, if we hope to find ourselves in a glorious new heaven and a new earth, then what does that mean here today for me? What kind of person should I be? How should I live my life? And he goes on to answer the question. You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Now what Peter does here is quite interesting. Now if you've ever sat under what one might call a fire and brimstone preacher, then you will know that they have two moves. Move number one, induce terror. You're going to burn in hell eternally when Christ comes. You will be judged and you're going to burn in hell. Move number two, drive home a strong message to encourage the desired outcome and behavior. You're going to burn in hell when Christ comes unless you're holy. Unless you're holy and pay your tithe, you're going to burn in hell when Christ comes. Words to that effect. Now, at a superficial glance, you'd be forgiven for thinking that's what Peter is doing when he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. But that's not what he's doing. He's not saying your holy life is what will guarantee your entry into Christ's kingdom. No. Christ's sacrifice is what guarantees your entry into Christ's kingdom. 
The only way into God's kingdom is by putting your faith and your trust in Christ as your Savior. It's all from God by mercy and grace. There is nothing you can do to earn it, much less guarantee it. But look at how he finishes the sentence. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward. It means as you eagerly anticipate, as you impatiently wait for, as you stand there tapping your foot. As you look forward for the day of God, sorry, as you impatiently wait for the day of God, and speed, by which he means hasten, urge on, way forward, it's coming. So you're standing on the station platform. You've been given a first-class ticket for free. You're standing over the yellow line, leaning dangerously forward to see past the crowd, and you can see that incredible, shiny, wonderful, phenomenal, new high-speed train waiting in the distance, which only has first-class seating, by the way, waiting in the distance, and which will take you to the place of your eternal dreams. And it's held back by some other stupid little red light. And you're thinking, come on, hurry up. What is the hold-up? Why? What? I want to get on the train. I want to get on the train. I want to get on the train. What is the hold-up? Come on, what is the hold-up? And Peter, in that context, says, it's not going to leave without you, so calm down. It's held at that light out of kindness because some people don't have their ticket yet. As I said earlier, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. In the meantime, be encouraged. Go and live a life that pleases him. You'll find yourself on the train before you know it. So Peter's message isn't be holy so you can pay for a ticket. Peter's message is Christ paid the ultimate price. Go to him for the ticket. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. Simply turn from your previous rebellious life. Put your trust in him. Go to him and then live a holy life in gratitude and honor of the Lord. Peter is desperate to equip us. And so he says, recall the words. Recall the words and be armed by the word because there are false teachers targeting you. He says, be assured. Be assured as surely as you live and breathe that the Lord will return. And finally he says, be encouraged that train is going to come. And so he closes his final letter to his Lord's people in verse 18, and he says this, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for this, which is Peter's final letter to us, your people. Thank you that you inspired him to ensure that we are equipped by being warned, by being assured, and by being encouraged. We pray, Lord, that you would hasten your arrival, that the signal light holding that train back in the distance would change from red to green, and that you would soon return in glory to renew heaven and earth. And we ask all this in your name and for your glory. Amen.